Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. You know, we talk a lot about the importance of knowing our own history as Puerto Ricans on this show, including the ways in which our history is kept from us. Our history is rich with colorful characters and monumentous events worth knowing. Some people recommend watching documentaries and reading books, but what about seeing and reading our history in the form of a graphic novel? Our guest today, John Vasquez Mejias, is a storyteller, artist, and art teacher living in the Bronx, and he created the Puerto Rican War, a graphic novel that tells the story of Puerto Rican revolutionaries fighting American colonialism in 1950. We spoke to him a couple of weeks ago to talk about his purpose behind this graphic novel, his art, and his perspective on the back-to-school debate as a teacher amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's jump into the interview. Our guest on today's episode is John Vasquez Mejias. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of John's work, I want to give him the floor to introduce himself. So, John, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? What should they know about you? Hey, everybody. My name is John Vasquez Mejias. I live in New York. I'm an artist, an art teacher, storyteller. I make really good smoothies. <laughs> Do you have a favorite smoothie? The secret ingredient is ginger. Uh, Other than that, you just kind of wing it. Right on. See what happens. So I, I wanted to have you on the show today because a friend of mine had suggested the Puerto Rican War, which is a graphic novel. So they suggested the Puerto Rican War. It's, it's this beautiful graphic novel. It took my eyes a second to get used to. It's just a, it's an aesthetic I'm not really used to seeing. And I just couldn't put the thing down. For those of us listening that may not be aware of the Puerto Rican War, what was the inspiration behind this? Oh man, where do I even start? I'll have to start in two places. One, that I've just been making comics since I was a little kid. When I was nine years old, I had a comic called Moose Man, which was a guy that had the powers of a moose, and I would draw it every week, pass it out to my family. So I just have been making comics and taking it seriously for decades. I went to art school. I was like a serious artist. And then when I graduated, I was like, what do I do? What do I do with my art? Like, you know what? I'm going to go back to making comics. I'm much of I'm, I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to the comic book world. Like I'm more like Image Comics, Marvel, DC. Were there any of like those? Was were you like drawn to some of those bigger characters, or did you like some more of like the niche comic book store out? There? No, so I'm kind of showing my age here, but like I, I, back in the day, there would just be a spinner rack at the candy store, and the comics would just be seventy five cents. Yeah, and so just I just got all the Marvel, like X Men and Daredevil and stuff like that and then when i when i was like i'm a grown-up now forget comics <laughs> i just was tired of it then i graduated school and I, I found more artsy comics like fanographics love and rockets 
and I just sort of re-entered it again. As a kid, I guess you could say Daredevil and the X-Men, and then as a 20-something, you could say like Eight Ball and Jimmy Corrigan and Levin Rockets. I don't know if you know these things. So on top of loving comics and growing and growing up on it, my grandparents had a farm in Puerto Rico, and we would go every summer, mm-hmm. and I would have that, that, that Puerto Rican summer on the farm where we just had like no shoes and I had a BB gun and I bought a baby turkey for 20 cents and I would just run around and I, and I loved it. It was, you know, the best thing ever. I had these two lives of New York and then Puerto Rico in the summer. Yeah. And I said to my, my dad once, I was like, Puerto Rico is the best. Why don't we live there? Like, why, why, why are we there? And he would, he would say to me, oh, how would he put it? He would say, Puerto Rico does not control its destiny. Mm. And yeah, like, what does that mean? Like, I'm 10. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And then, like, he just wouldn't tell me. <laughs> but mm. through him and through his rants, he's like the Puerto Rican Bukowski. I started to learn more about the history of Puerto Rico. And then, of course, nobody really knows the history and the stories. Even some Puerto Ricans don't know the story. Mm. So, I, so I made this comic. When I read your graphic novel, and I'm seeing the characters that you've highlighted, it reminded me of this conversation I was having with a journalist. Her name's Isabel Diepa. We interviewed her in one of our earlier episodes in the podcast, and our episode was focused on top 10 Puerto Rican superheroes or villains. And this might come as a surprise to you, John, but it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to lock <laughs> down Puerto Rican superheroes and villains to come up with the top 10 list. So your graphic novel, the intentionality you put in here man, you can tell there's a lot of work you put into this. And you chose significant characters in Puerto Rican history. Dr. Pedro Bizu Campos. This guy's not Puerto Rican, but Truman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we should definitely know his influence. Why did you choose this particular time timeline in Puerto Rican history and these characters? I think back to, back to your point, like let's say you're just hanging out with friends and somebody says to you like, Oh, you're Puerto Rican. What do you want to tell us about Puerto Rico? You're like, where do I start? You know, it's just yeah. such a broad question. Mm-hmm. Like when you go to a when you go to a diner and the menu is so thick, you're like, where do I get? I don't know. There's so much that I can't even pick. So I thought that um, Law 57, which um, was around in Puerto Rico, which you couldn't have a flag under the law, you couldn't sing a patriotic tune, you couldn't speak of independence. And then compost just making this big move. I was like, this is a good place to start for people, mm-hmm. you know, to see where we've come from, to have an understanding. This is a good starting point. And I just made a really simple bullet pointed list based on compost and law 57. And I was like, let me keep it there. It can go on in so many directions and other art and other stories, but I thought that was good for people that didn't know anything as far as understanding law 57 and compost. Yeah. Just want to hold up that page on Law 57 that you had. I thought I loved this part because it's simple, digestible. And it almost acts as that little string that you tug on, and then you start to kind of it starts to unravel, and then it leads to more questions and more learning. If you had to give someone that picked up this graphic novel, you had to give them an elevator pitch on what this was. How would you describe it? This is a piece of information with an artist using his artist's voice to speak it. So it's not as simple and straightforward and boring as a Wikipedia entry. Mm -hmm. You can see some little John 
things in there because I've got my own little opinions about it. I've got some things that come from my heart. So I'm not just a straight up reporter giving you information. You can constantly see like, oh, this is obviously his opinion. This is obviously something he cares very much about. Mm-hmm. So information with heart. <laughs> How's that? Right on. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> and can you, can you give us a sense of years? What's the time frame here? It's really just sitting in 1950. So we're talking about 1950s Puerto Rico, United States relations. You know, that was the year Campos made a big move where he said, we're going to take over two towns. We're going to try to kill the president. We're going to bring attention to our cause. He got his people together and he just sort of made all these moves to bring attention in 1950. It was like a big move for him. Do you have any plans to explore other time periods in Puerto Rico's history? I do. And, you know, as I was making it, I was thinking about the Ponce Massacre. And I was like, that's going to take forever if I did the Ponce Massacre. Yeah. So I left it alone. And then I was like, I have to put Lolita Lebron in it. And I kept trying to. She's going to get her own book. Okay. She's going to get her own book. And it's, it's not going to take six years this time. It's going to take two years. Yeah. But <laughs> good to know. That's so I've good to know. T- we, we did a uh, hundred years of Lolita Lebron. What would have been her hundredth birthday was past fall. So I, that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Like, what are the plans for Lolita? And I'm starting. I just finished reading yet another book about her and doing some interviews. My mom is helping me a lot. Actually, I'm probably going to give her credit as one of the authors. She's helping me so much. That's awesome. But yeah, that's in the works. Have you uh, ever reached out to Jose Lopez at the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago? He actually knew Lolita. No, I yeah. I'm going to now. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, he's been in the game for a while. So this novel, one really unique thing, and I, I put it up on the screen here. It doesn't look like your average graphic novel. So you, you used woodcut to tell this story, to bring this story to life. Can you walk us through what that process of creating a novel like this, like what is that process like to use woodcut as your imagery from one page to the next? Let me see, where do I start? It's a pain in the butt and it makes your fingers numb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When I was discovering, I'm an artist, you know, I'm going to try things and I I started painting. I was terrible at painting, like oil paint. I just kind of thought that had to be the thing. I thought it was sunk, but I still love the drawing. So I just took a random printmaking class and it just made a lot of sense to me. That's like your primary medium of art then. That's your go-to. Currently, it's, it's what I'm doing. It's, it's awesome. totally, it's printmaking and wood carving is a way of thinking. You start off, everything's black. Mm-hmm. You're drawing it in a pencil and you're subtracting, you're taking away. So I draw everything really simple in pencil on a black piece of wood And then with my carving tools, I'm taking away. And that's when the real art is happening spontaneously. And I just started to really love it. It just made sense to me. Like my drawing style was already thick and chunky. So just as I was trying things out, like, oh, God, let's make this works. In the same way, like maybe my peers were doing oil painting and they were having success. So I was having success with that. Yeah, I I was familiar with Woodcut before reading reading this graphic novel and... I just had never seen it used in this form before. So I, I, you had said it took you six years to put this together. I can, I can see why with all the research and, and actually drawing this all out. And yeah, and also I have, I'm an art teacher, so I have a full-time job. So 
Yes. Okay. We, and we definitely want to get into that in the interview too. I mean, I, how you balance those, kudos to you, because uh, this is a really nice piece of work. Do you only do woodcut for stuff like this, for stuff like the Puerto Rican War, or well, do you create other kinds of pieces? If you look back at everything I made, like my comics, like I started just drawing comics. Mm -hmm. And then I just started doing one thing, like I just did like a little, like I carved into an eraser and I put in like a little face and that was cool. And then like one day, like I did a, a woodcut comic that was like four panels long, it was like one page. I was like, can I do it? Yeah. And I still hand wrote the text. And then I was like, can I do the text? That's my next step. And then, so just getting further and further. Yeah. And like I just tell everybody, I just carve better than I draw, but can I do it? And so just years and years mm -hmm. until, you know, this is where I am. Yeah, this is where you are. You know, that you can, it's nice to see all that work that you put in when you actually produce something and you can kind of see the blood, sweat and tears you put into this, just reading it from one page to the next. Again, like I said earlier, a lot of intentionality here. I want to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned being a teacher in New York. Uh, I believe it's in the Bronx, right? I uh, started teaching in the Bronx. I was art teacher in the late 90s. Okay. I taught there for six years, and then I went to Long Island and then Jersey City, and now I'm going back to the Bronx again. Okay. And then did you grow up in the Bronx? I did not. New York. Okay. My parents were born in Spanish Harlem. Okay. And then they achieved the dream of every Puerto Rican living in Spanish Harlem as they moved to Long Island, which was like, they made it, you know, and they had their kids on Long Island, even though we couldn't get like Yucca and like Long Island, but they had to keep going back to the city. And as soon as I was a teenager, I was like, New York City is so much better than Long Island. And they were like, we know. Um, so eventually we've all moved back to the city. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. What's it like teaching in New York City now? Um, I mean, well, we have, the backdrop here is the pandemic. So we'll be, I definitely want to get your thoughts on the whole back to school narrative that's been out there and the push from, from certain figures in our society. But 
I can't give you I can't give you a huge narrative because I was teaching in Jersey City at a really really great school that I love, but I just wasn't a, a Jersey kind of guy. Mm. So as I was getting myself back to New York City with a couple of leads mm-hmm. for a new teaching job, the the, the pandemic happened. So I was just and I was like, oh, I'm stuck, you know. Mm. So no teaching so- yet for me. So what does that mean now? Because I know that the larger discussion around back to school, there's there's one side that pushes, you know, let's get the kids back in school, in-person teaching, in-person learning. And then there's another end of the spectrum that's like, let's not safe. Let's, let's just do remote learning until we know we can actually bring kids back to school safely. What does that mean for someone that is an art teacher like yourself? Because I know when it comes can to- I, can, I, can I just add one thing oh, into please. that? I taught in two public schools in the Bronx, sort of around the East Tremont area, yeah. the Bronx area. And at these schools, <laughs> always overcrowded, sometimes 36 kids in a room, no soap, always in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Us teachers brought our own toilet paper in a building that was made, <laughs> I think in the 40s and 50s, to speak of the ventilation of the building. So I'm like, what are you talking about? How are we going to get this to work? Mm-hmm. It's like, nobody knows, you know, like, don't assume we have soap and toilet paper, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. For, for a lot of years, I did a comic about teaching art in the Bronx before I did the Puerto Rico book. It was called oh. The Teacher's Edition. You can also take a look at that. My first comic I ever did was about being an art teacher in the Bronx. Awesome. Um, but with those things I just mentioned to you, the average person doesn't know that, isn't putting that into account, just like how mm-hmm. the overcrowding, the lack of funds. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the charter schools that have more money can handle a little better. Or maybe the, the magnet schools get a little more attention, they get a little more money. But if you're just in the Bronx on East Tremont Avenue, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things um, like I always used to say in my comic, the comic is about how poor people just getting ripped off in public school. And this is going to be another thing that they're really going to have a hard time with. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that, John, because I, I, we're totally on the same page. You know, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I, you're absolutely right on, spot on about the overcrowding. I, I don't think people are being, the people that are, are really pushing for going uh, back to in-school learning it's just a short, I think it's a short-sighted mentality just because, yeah, like you said, it's not the reality. And I, I've heard this example. I can't remember what country it was. I want to say Sweden, but I could be wrong. But it was this model where you'd have a classroom broken up into groups of 10, have a teacher in there. And that way, all the learning exists in that kind of isolated environment of so one kid or a teacher gets sick, you're just quarantining that section but we have a teacher shortage, we have a funding shortage, we have overcrowding in schools. So unless, unless our country, unless the United States is gonna severely invest in our education system, I don't see how it's realistic to, to bring kids back to school. And I'm just so perplexed by this idea uh, or this narrative of, well, kids don't really get sick. But yeah, the parents, the grandparents that they're coming home to, might be more vulnerable to this to this virus than the kids are, and we're even seeing a jump in kids uh, catching the virus too. So it's 
It's about transmitting it. And I, it just seems like a, a very short-sighted thing to push for, for in-person schooling. I think it's just kind of lose-lose because I don't think that Zoom meetings and teaching is, is great either. It's just yeah. there's a virus consuming the country. A hundred and thirty bus drivers in New York have died from COVID. Wow. What's going to happen with the teachers? Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Well, and our teachers, in my opinion, our teachers don't get paid nearly enough, uh, given the work, the training, the education that they have to go through, and the day, the long days. How are you gonna? How are you gonna put people that are already working at a um, working in a system that doesn't really support them, doesn't really support the kids they teach, uh, and then ask them to deal with this pandemic at the same time. It just, you're, it's, a, it's a lose-lose. And I don't know how you as an art teacher, it just feels like when I read about the education system, it feels like the arts is normally one of the things that they bring the scissors out to and start cutting. Oh, but yeah. How does Look, that- I always say... <laughs> like there's there's no teacher meetings that are like how's Mejia's going to do his art program like there's nobody yeah, yeah. <laughs> worried about right. that although like I I'm always worried about it yeah. but it's kind of a good a wonderful thing and a horrible thing being an art teacher in public schools like that because I always say to to I, I mentor art teachers and I always say to them you learn how to deal with the kids so that you love them and they love you you're not a classroom that has fights all day long. You make the school beautiful with artwork and you're done. Everyone will be like, all right, you got it. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's a really nice thing about being an art teacher. I mean, if you're a terrible art teacher and you're passing out crayons, then you should be shot. You know, like, mm-hmm. I have no love for you. But if you really care and you can do those two things I just mentioned, make the school beautiful. Oh, art is important. Our school is beautiful. Look at this. What would we do without the art teacher? And the kids are in a safe environment with you and you can trust them and they can trust you. Mm-hmm. Not all kids are angels. It takes a strong teacher to, to have a connection with the kids. If you can do those two things, you got it made. You're art teacher of the year. Mm. That's well, we, my rant about teaching art. Oh, right on, right on. <laughs> so what does this mean with the pandemic? And like, I don't know what New York's current situation is. I thought I heard, last I read Governor Cuomo was thinking of bringing kids back into in-person schools for in-person learning. They're going to bring them back. They're going to have the high school kids stay in one room and the teachers are going to move from room to room. There's going to be, there's a lot of different things happening. There's going to be partial. Some days you're there, sometimes you're back. It's not even official yet. What are you foreseeing to be some of your biggest challenges when it gets to that point of the, the school year starting from an art teacher perspective? To do something meaningful, you know, to to have meaningful lessons. Like, like, you know, you don't ever want to be the guy that's just passing out crayons and saying, all right, everyone color, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Mm -hmm. art teaching artists much more than that, but it takes materials and it takes in person and it takes a room where we can all get messy, which we obviously can't do now. And and you're teaching, you're teaching a variety of ages or do you only teach um, a specific age group or specific grade level? Well, I have been teaching since the late 90s. I've taught everybody. I've taught pre-K. I've taught high school. I did adjunct at a college for printmaking. I've, I've seen everybody. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, so you're, you're pretty well-rounded. Um, I mean, best of luck to you when it comes to that point where, where the, school, the school year starts. Glad to hear that as an art teacher, you're totally against, like, 
all right, here's some crayons and, uh, you know, have fun for the next 45 minutes. So uh, it sounds like the kids well, you know, that's a, a good hand. Yeah, that's the thing where as an art teacher, you have the best of intentions, you start teaching, and like the principal's worried about test scores, but this, they don't care about you, they don't care about you for the budget. So a lot of teacher, art teachers will say, you don't care, so I don't care. You know what, I'm gonna pass out crayons and just get paid. I've seen it so many times. Mm. And so you really have to just depend on yourself and you have to believe in art yourself, and just believe like you're on a mission, yeah. you know, <laughs> if you wanna be a good mm. art teacher. Now, you're really opening up my art teaching rants. I apologize. <laughs> no, all good, all good. Speaking of being on a mission, shifting shift gears a little bit. Last question I had for you had to do with uh, the recent calls uh, or kind of recent calls for, for Puerto Rico statehood uh, that started popping up in parallel with these larger calls for D.C. to become a state. What are your, I think I might know what, what side of the fence you land on on that discussion, but what are your thoughts on the current status of Puerto Rico? People want to see change, but what change do you think is needed? I think first and foremost, I don't live in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I would visit there in the summer times with my grandparents as a kid. I feel very bratty and selfish to stand on a pedestal and say what they should do as I don't live there. You know, it's it's jerky of me to start making a speech about something that I'm not. It's where my family comes from. It's my heritage. It's my culture, and I love it so much. But I don't. I don't live there, so I, I can't. Hey, everybody, do this. I can't. I can't do that. If Puerto Rico did become part a state, it would be a great treat for America. We would have so much culture for them. We're too good for them. We would give them. They, America doesn't have any culture. McDonald's isn't culture. We would have so much to give them. Nothing but good things for them. I don't think they even deserve us. But, um, you know, like my dad said, I I always want Puerto Rico to be in charge of its own destiny. Mm. Mm. And uh, that's all I'll say. How's that? (laughs) Wow, well said. All right, John, let let our audience know how they can keep up with you. You got any social media handles, website that you can share with people? How can they... Uh, you can find me on Instagram at John Vasquez Mejias. If you're clever, you'll find it. A website, johnvasquezmejias.com, where you can buy my book. And sometimes I put prints up there and other pieces of artwork that are available for purchase. And I should also say that one day when we don't have a virus, I have a puppet show performance that's based on the book. And so it's marionettes and it's costumes and it's a retelling of the book in a 20 minute puppet performance. I was going to do a whole book tour in bookstores with the puppet show, but then the virus happened. So one day in the future, maybe look at my website and you can see a bunch of marionettes that it took me forever to make retelling the story. All right. Well, hopefully we get out of this situation, out of this pandemic on on a on an okay note, uh, and you're able to, to really spread the message uh, on your work and get to, get to actually show that show. I really appreciate you being on the show, John. Thanks for being a part of the Paseo podcast today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Special thanks to John Vasquez Mejias for coming on the show. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, 
and following us at Basil Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.